Hello and welcome to the Mountain Conversations podcast, the show that celebrates the beautiful planet we call home. Each episode, alongside an expert who is passionate about their subject, we will take you on a journey to get you excited about the topic. This is a show about hope and positivity, and it's my hope that by learning something new each episode about the work of amazing people who dedicate their lives to making a difference, you will be inspired to take action and get involved in the efforts to preserve our beautiful home, planet Earth. I'm Charlie, and this is Mountain Conversations. Welcome to this episode of the Mountain Conversations podcast. I've had a really great time so far chatting to some incredible people who really are dedicating their lives to creating a positive impact on the world around them. I hope, like me, you've taken a lot from each episode and have perhaps learned some things that you didn't expect to. Today I'm joined by another brilliant guest, marine biologist and filmmaker from Swimming Head Productions, Dr. Natasha Phillips is here with me now. Hi, Tasha. Thanks so much for joining me. Hi, Charlie. Thanks for having me. Could you introduce what we're going to be talking about today. Yeah so today I thought we'd talk a little bit about the ocean sunfish uh, which is my favourite marine creature and something that I've been studying for a number of years now and then I also thought we'd talk about science outreach and communications. Brilliant it sounds exciting but first um, as I do with all of my guests could we rewind and talk about what it was that sort of inspired you to take this journey what was it that got you interested in the oceans and made you want to dedicate your life to it well I'm sure the same as many of your guests you've had on it comes from kind of like childhood memories of going to the beach enjoying exploring rock pools um the legend that is Sir David Attenborough watching Mm -hmm. those on telly and just those small influences that kind of build up and then you go oh the natural world is fascinating I didn't realize I could spend a career or someone would actually pay me to look into these things that I find really interesting um and so I kind of was edging that way and then I realized you could take marine biology as a degree program and I just never looked back from there really that sounds exciting. I mean, um, I've mentioned before in a previous episode that sort of a fascination with the sea is quite new for me because I've, I've never really lived near the coast um, until a few months ago when I moved here to North Wales and I'm sort of sandwiched between the sea and the mountains. And I was, I've said before that this summer, uh, well, last summer was the first time I'd seen a jellyfish. What kind was it? Oh, there was, um, there was moon jellyfish, compass jellyfish and big barrel ones oh wow the whole everything the best of the best <laughs> yeah yeah but the, it was the the compass ones that seemed to be the most frequent uh, I remember one time going down to the beach and you couldn't get onto the beach because there was just so many of them washed up wow. it was really it was a strange sight really um first time I saw a little anemone in a rock pool you know and I'm nearly 30 and I've never seen these things it's like <laughs> Um, but it, it really has sparked fascination so I'm excited um, to learn about fu- sunfish um, nearly called them funfish then <laughs> they are funfish well, I like that. we'll find that out so a sunfish so for people who don't perhaps don't know what a sunfish is I always think they look like you know you know in Peppa Pig if they were to draw a fish that's how I uh, that's how I yes. think a sunfish looks that's like. a great description it is. it's like <laughs> a child's just... drawing yeah they are aren't they could you describe what a sunfish looks like So um, an ocean sunfish looks like a bin lid with wings coming out the top and bottom of it, uh, with big googly eyes poking out either side of its head and a a little round mouth that's almost constantly open with little teeth behind like a parrot's beak. Um, It is, it's like a a child's drawing of a fish. It doesn't really have a tail 
as such or a proper caudal tail it's this is um what i love best about the sunfish is the descriptions of them or the names for them in different languages so we call them the sunfish because they like to bask as part of their behavior at the sea surface they look like the sun on the water um but then in other countries such as like in italy and france they're known as the moonfish it's again this big silvery disc of a fish looks a bit like the moon but in german it's the swimming head fish it looks like a giant head and uh, I think it was in Japan, it's the toppled cartwheel fish. Okay. And so it gives you this sense of this big, round, strange fish. And you know, normally when you look at a fish, you vaguely know what it does. So if you're looking at a tuna or a shark, you're thinking this lovely torpedo-like shape and it's built for strength and speed. And you're like, okay, I can figure out what that one does. Or a, a flatfish, say, and you'd be like, oh, maybe it's camouflage with its eyes pointing up, looking out for potential predators. And then you look at a sunfish and... I mean, where do you even start? It's so weird. It's so bizarre. And, and that's how, really how I got into sunfish was it was suggested that this would be a fish we don't know very much about. Um, they're being removed in their tens to maybe hundreds of thousands each year. They're listed as vulnerable by the IUCN. And yet we don't really know that much about them. We don't know where they travel to. We don't know how long they live, where they spawn. Um, and yet there's also we know little snippets such as it's the largest bony fish in the world that it's record-breaking in terms of its fecundity. And yet, yeah, we know there's, there's very select little facts about them. So I think they're really fascinating fish. They are. I mean, when, when you say sort of you look at other fish and you can kind of tell what they do, a sunfish, you can't really tell whether it's supposed to be on its side. Is it supposed to be sort of flat? What's, <laughs> what's going on? If you, Yeah, obviously the tail position as well. It's sort of, it's just a really confusing fish to me it's completely different and it's really exciting and the fact that it also goes from being when they're first released as larvae they're just a couple of millimeters long and they grow to these over three meters in length and I think someone said to me it was the equivalent of a human baby growing to six times the size of the titanic wow. it's this incredible growth range I, it just why so many questions how does it work I mean it's wonderful so why then what do sunfish do? Why are you fascinated with <laughs> sunfish? What can you tell us about this strange pepper pig fish? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, there's a, there's a lot to learn about sunfish. Like I said, we, we don't know that much about them. And so it's really interesting that in the last couple of years, there's been a lot of research interest. And so we are picking up these, these fascinating new elements about their lives. So, for example, one of my main interests is what they eat. Um, because for a long time, it was thought that they only ate jellyfish. Um, which obviously will be a strange dietary choice for a massive animal. So we know that jellyfish are mainly made up of water. They don't really have that many calories or nutrients. Um, but then with further research from collaborators all over the world, different research groups, um, it began to, this bigger picture appeared that was more complicated, you know, as it often is when you take mm -hmm. a second look. Yeah. And it seemed that these smaller sunfish, and when I say small, I mean like less than a metre, <laughs> <laughs> so relatively speaking, yeah. um, they have a bit of a mixed diet. So maybe half their diet is made up of crustaceans or mollusks, maybe even some fish species. But then, yeah, as they get bigger than a metre and up to three, their diet becomes from this half mixed, half jellyfish diet to almost 100% jellyfish. And it's a really strange paradox. This yeah, giant animal can get all of its energy needs as a big fish. And so that was something I was really keen to explore. And so we think maybe it's because the smaller fishes need a higher energy content because they need to grow so quickly to outgrow predators, perhaps. 
Um, we also know that they're more likely to be found, these smaller sunfish, in coastal areas where the water is probably a bit warmer, they've got more access to these kind of foods. But maybe as they get bigger, they can then dive deeper because they're able to cope with colder water. There's a huge biomass of gelatinous species out there, so they can really exploit this enormous food source. And the thing that I love best about, I guess, big sunfish is that they're picky eaters. <laughs> so that it might not just be your typical jellyfish, they'll eat the most energetically nutritious parts of those jellyfish. So rather than eating the whole thing, which might not be worth it, they'll focus on the oral arms or the gonads. So it's like the jellyfish eggs, like jellyfish caviar. Yeah. So that really boosts the nutrients and energy content. So they're quite smart in that sense that there's this huge biomass of gelatinous prey. When I say gelatinous prey, not just your typical jellyfish, but also things like pyrosomes and tenophores and salps. There's a whole host of gelatinous creatures. Um, it's not hugely exploited. And so they can, if they can find a dense patch, they can really go to town on that. And then when we compare it to other species like leatherback turtles, who are true gelativores, they're called, that only eat jellyfish, they can be the size of a mini, you know, of a small car. They weigh tons. They only eat jellyfish. So we know it is possible to get your whole energy needs from just eating jellies. And in fact, with the leatherback turtle, I think someone said that if they were snacking on only jellyfish weighing four grams, they could reach their energy needs for the day in four hours if the jellyfish boom is dense enough. So it, it can really add up. I guess that's something maybe we all know that even if you snack on low calorie foods, unfortunately, it still adds up. So it's the same for the sunfish, too. I suppose if you think about it, though, if you if you have a, a whale, one of the, you know, the biggest whales eat krill yeah. don't they they just eat loads yeah. of krill. <laughs> so but you'd imagine them to eat you know you think it would be more sensible for them to eat bigger things less bigger things yeah to be more of like a, a big predator or I eat more fish or something similar but no it's fascinating <laughs> to see this diversity of strategies yeah and I think that's one thing I found fascinating about the sunfish and I guess again because there's so many things to learn about them from people doing you know broader studies of tagging and tracking we're starting to learn a bit more about where they go and what they do um, and you find them all over the world. So they're often uh, commonly mis... Uh, people think commonly they're, they're tropical species, but actually it's not the case. So we know they can be found as far south in the southern hemisphere as off the coast of Chile, and they're found commonly off Australia and New Zealand. And then in the northern hemisphere, they can be into the Arctic Circle off Iceland and Norway, and all the tropical and temperate seas in between. So they've got this enormous range I just think it's fascinating that we don't know more about them, seeing as they could clearly be anywhere. There's if, a lot more to learn. If they've got this huge range, is there are there is there just one this is a silly question, is there just one species of sunfish or are there No, I think that's a great question. Yeah, so a lot of people think that there's because we've all heard of the ocean sunfish, but mm. actually there's five sunfish species right. in in the family group is called the Molidae, or that we more commonly known as the Molids. So we've got the ocean sunfish we all know, whose Latin name is Mola Mola, which actually means millstone, millstone, again, describing its lovely shape. Um, and then aside from the, the ocean sunfish, there's Mola Alexandrini, which is the southern ocean sunfish, which looks very similar. Um, we've got a new sunfish species described only a couple of years ago called Mola Tecta, which is now known as the hoodwinker sunfish that was hiding in plain sight. Um, there's Masterus lancelatus, which is the sharp-tailed sunfish. And Ranzania levis, which is a slender sunfish, which has these beautiful stripes on its side. It looks quite different from the others. So, no, there are five real species of, of in, the, in the Molidae. Um, and so that was something that I only really studied Mola Mola. Uh, but then 
last year, yeah, last year we started doing a sunfish book, a collection of us sunfish researchers from around the world. And it was a fascinating way to learn more about all these different species and, and what we need to do for future conservation questions, really. Absolutely. So I suppose if the, it's the different species that live in these different sort of zones of the ocean, if you like, that's mm. fascinating. But do they all eat these jellyfish in you know, all of the different species in the different parts of the ocean? Yeah, well, again, it's not really been studied that much. So I know that in some species in, in Australia, we've got the uh, Southern Ocean sunfish. They've been noticed eating squid. Mm. Um, and I mean, in fact, the tables turn. In fact, that we often think of Mola Mola being so large, it escapes the handling capabilities of predators. But things like Ranzania leaves, the slender sunfish is so much smaller. We often find that being eaten by other species. So especially the, the smaller specimens, the juveniles, you often find them being really heavily predated on by birds, which we see less of in other sunfish species. They clearly have these different niches. Sometimes the species overlap in their range. So no, it is, it's really fascinating to figure out Oh, how the natural world and how our oceans really work. Well, this is going to be my next question was, are the, do they have predators if they're so big? Um, did, what, what eats them? Obviously, you've said birds eat some of the smaller ones, but these great big sort of bin lids, <laughs> do they have predators or are they fair? Yeah, they, they can do. So I know that um, one large sunfish was found in four big pieces in a shark's stomach. Wow. Um, but they're slightly protected in that they have a really strange skin and that they've underneath they've got like a thin they've got a thin like sandpaper skin layer that's very thin on the outside but beneath that there's a really thick almost like gelatinous layer that's bright white and it can be several inches thick and so they're often called like the ocean coconut because it looks like coconut inside and this kind of capsule it's also been called kind of covers the whole body and so that gives them some protection from predators um but then in other places, like things like killer whale or the orca, there's been noted that some fish have been arrived in their stomachs or have been noted being played with. Um, and in California in particular, particular, being played with rather than being eaten seems to be more of an issue with things like the sea lions. So they'll take a small sunfish, maybe like, yeah, less than a metre, something they can play with. Mm. And um, they use them almost like frisbees. Oh, wow. it's, uh, yeah, it's not very nice. They can take mm. the fins off and then just skim them between. And it's like a cat with a mouse. Mm. So I don't think they're necessarily eating them. But uh, the result is the same for the sunfish. They, they probably won't survive that. Oh, that's really sad. Oh. Um, <laughs> well, nature my... can be very cruel. <laughs> yeah, no, it can, can't it? Especially when you think of things like that. Um my last question, just just before we move on to a little bit about their conservation, was sort of socially, you, you know, these big, these big, massive creatures, do they live alone or are they part of a group? Just... Oh, these are really good questions that are really, they're, <laughs> they're really hard to answer. I mean, I know that when some fish are smaller, they seem to be in these lovely big shoals. So we think that might be partly protection from predators, um, partly looking for good foraging sites, things like that. You know, it makes sense for smaller fish to stay together and to forage in these lovely inshore coastal environments but as they get bigger they do appear to become more solitary um, and they'd be able to exploit these deeper offshore feeding habitats but it is possible to find some of them in, in groups at some times of the larger fish it really depends where in the world you are and what species you're looking at so I know that in California again you get large numbers of mola mola um, and so you get some of the large ones hanging out in small groups underneath kind of kelp patties that are floating on the surface. Um, and then obviously there are big fisheries for them in parts of Asia. So in Japan, they have harpoon and net fisheries. So obviously it needs to be um, viable for the fishes. So I'm assuming they will be gathering up numbers of them at a time in a net. 
So yeah, it, it does vary a, a little bit and things like that. Yeah, like sunfish are just a massive enigma. That... <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> and we've got we've got a lot to learn, but I think they're fascinating. Um, I know you mentioned that they are vulnerable. Um, what mm. are the reasons for that? What's made what's causing their sort of decline? Well, yeah, it's difficult to say, I suppose, that there's such a, a whole range of factors that could be involved. So after we did the, the Sunfish book, obviously, there was a, going to be a chapter on future questions. And a group of us who were involved in that then formed uh, a panel for the IUCN. So we're actually updating the IUCN listing right now, led by Dr. Tierney Tees. Um, and so, yeah, obviously, all of that is about evaluating vulnerability to extinction. Um, so at the moment, uh, we'll just lead with Mola Mola. Um, they're listed as vulnerable. And so to do that for the IUCN, you then have to go through a huge set of very detailed criteria to say at what risk of extinction is this fish. So even with the IUCN, their lowest classification is called least concern, but that doesn't mean it's not at risk of extinction. It just means uh, it's not going to go extinct in its across the species global range. But if you lose small populations on the way, it could still be listed as least concern, for example. It's just about preserving the whole species. So it, it's, um, yeah, it is very difficult to classify. So we've been meeting weekly for the last year to be able to gather all the information we can on each of the five species to evaluate their, um, their risk of extinction. And this is from a whole range of things. So obviously there are fisheries pressures. They are eaten uh, or caught for human consumption in different parts of the world, um, particularly in Japan and Taiwan. Um, there's also the issue of bycatch, where some fish are then caught accidentally when we're targeting other species in open waters, such as tuna or maybe billfish. There's a huge amount of bycatch, which may survive on this when they're put back into the sea. Sometimes they're not put back. Sometimes we believe they don't survive. So that can be a really big issue. Um, there's potentially impacts of climate change. You know, when obviously warming oceans or, or changing oxygen levels or ocean acidification, they change the habitats of sunfish and their prey. And we don't quite understand necessarily how that's going to change where they can go yet. Mm-hmm. So it's a big combination of all these interlinked different factors. Um, and so it is a challenge to predict where they will be in a few years time and to think about best conservation practice for them. No, for absolutely. Sure. absolutely. So just thinking of, a world without sunfish I'm imagining that obviously nature balances itself so I'm assuming that if we didn't have sunfish that the jellyfish populations would just skyrocket well it's possible but there are lots of other species that eat jellies I mean it's it's difficult to predict because another species might then come to the fore and be able to exploit that niche that's then been left empty or mm-hmm. um yeah it, it is very difficult to predict things like that and I guess jellyfish are so um prevalent across our world's ecosystems that if some fish were making a dent in the numbers I think we'd probably know about it already it's difficult really to say to what although they eat large quantities of jellyfish there are so many hundreds of millions of tons of gelatinous um, species living happily in balance it's it's normally when yeah when we've changed something fundamental about an ecosystem that uh, we get the the harmful jellyfish blooms that um, have been noticed in different parts of the world but yeah it it would be a sadder world without some fish and I'm sure it would have knock-on effects on local ecosystems well I'm I for one am absolutely terrified of jellyfish I absolutely love them (laughs) and find them fascinating but ever since I've well we were swimming quite happily in the beat on in the sea until about June and then all of a sudden I was like nope (laughs) nope, not going in the sea I know the UK species aren't going to do me much harm but you know still I can pack a nasty punch as as long as they're just 
uh, the moon jellyfish I guess that's all right but if it's anything else then yeah probably best to steer clear <laughs> yeah well as as it was sort of as I said the compass jellyfish that were sort of yeah. most pop most popular on the beaches in North Wales last year then yeah I thought we would we would stay clear um yeah. still fascinated <laughs> by them though I really want to do an episode on jellyfish because I just yeah definitely I think they're beautiful that they're, they're so they're so strange and alien like like little jewels they're beautiful to look at anyway we digress so what What's been done about the conservation issues that sunfish are facing? What projects are happening? And I know you've talked about the IUCN um, things that you're involved with, but is there anything else that's going on? Well, the problem with sunfish is I don't know of any specific conservation management measures yet for them anywhere in the world. So that's something that we're really keen to highlight as part of the IUCN um, listing is that we do need to start thinking about this and, and about protocols for bycatch, about recording individual species. Quite often they're lumped together as just sunfish, but it would be helpful if it was species specific and if it was done either by weight or by number or both consistently, because at the moment it can be very difficult that in one country you've got a tonnage, which obviously when you're talking about something like a sunfish, that could be a ton of sunfish could be one sunfish or it <laughs> yeah. could be hundreds of small sunfish. Yeah. And so it would be really helpful to know a little bit more data so we can actually do something about that. Uh, that would be really helpful. So I don't know in the long run. Yeah, I'd love to see them protected in more areas. Or, but we know they're quite motile. They do move around. So things like protected areas might not be appropriate for the species. I think it's more about having a better awareness and making sure that if they are caught accidentally that they're put back or, or thinking about maybe seasonal management measures. Um, because in some areas they appear in large numbers at specific times of year. Maybe that would be a good time to help fishers avoid them because yeah. the, the fishers don't want to catch them either because they're worthless. They take up time to process and get out of the nets. Maybe there's some better collaborations we could have there between the fishing community and the conservation or scientists to um, to improve catch efficiency so you avoid getting these waste fish. That would be really important. How do you monitor a sunfish population? Is it about sort of tagging and monitoring where they go or is it? Is... Yeah, it can be. So that's, that's some really exciting studies. People have been putting out satellite tags to find out where they go. And some of them are doing some fantastic movements crossing really long distances. And we don't know if they really migrate as such because mm. migration implies that reciprocal movement time and time again so it might just be more oceanic wanderings Mm -hmm. to suitable habitats um and maybe in localized areas they'll be doing north south movements but it's um it's still early days other people are using small um little plastic number tags so if they're caught again you can just do a quick mark recapture study you can know where your fish was seen and put it back in the next time someone catches it they do the same um and yeah, there's things like, you know, new dietary studies, new genetics techniques. There's all kinds of fascinating new methods that we can apply to look at sunfish populations. So, yeah, I think the future is going to be really exciting as more and more people get interested. We collect more data and, and yeah, then we get a lot more information on these species. I like the the idea of the the sort of the ocean wanderer, you know, just like just chilling out floating yeah, around cruising around trying to find where they want to be yeah in <laughs> where they want to be that night yeah it's a bit like the human equivalent of like you know the hashtag van life yeah definitely yeah, yeah. They, they would fit right in with the camper van movement <laughs> I, I'm only saying that because I've just got one and I'm yeah <gasps> like oh I'm very jealous <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um well I suppose living in in sort of north Wales it's it's sort of it was an automatic progression there was a kayak bought a kayak and then um and then I bought the camper and thought, yeah, do you know what? I'm just going to call it. Yeah. 
<laughs> anyway, we digress again. Can we move now more on to sort of your SciComm work and yeah. um, your work with uh, your film production company, uh, Swimming Heads? Yeah, so I guess one element of, of being in academia made me realise that it's really important, obviously, to, to promote your science, to share it as widely as you can. Um, and it can be difficult because when you publish things scientifically, they're often held by a journal and behind a paywall. That's just the way the system works. And so as a scientist, that's difficult because you want your science to be read by lots of people. And as someone interested in science, that's also can be quite frustrating. You want to access the latest scientific research. So by making short films, um, that's how I started, was trying to share what I'd been up to and then um, me and my husband, Lawrence Eagling, who's also a marine biologist, um, we started making videos for friends and for colleagues. And then we started to get small jobs doing similar things. It's just scaled up from there, really, that at Swimming Head Productions, which we now run together, we do everything from short social media, you know, rapid fire stories to full documentary features. So and, and everything in between. So it's yeah, it, it's really fascinating to explore these different stories behind the scenes it could be science, natural history. We also do other issues like social issues and bits of history. It's it's just the telling of stories, I think, that is something that we all gravitate towards. A good story is always compelling. Um, and the power of social media to reach people is just fantastic. So you really can share these stories really widely. Yeah, no, I think it's so important, as I mentioned before we started recording, the reason I started this podcast was because of because of my own sort of background and interest in science and I realized that so much of it is just so inaccessible to non-scientific people and I mean the the amount of people that would just say oh I'm not bothered about that but it wasn't that they weren't bothered it was because they just didn't understand it because it wasn't presented in a way that was accessible to them so what I want to do with this well yeah exactly so what I want to do with this is is take subjects like you know wasps and sunfish and plankton and things that people normally go oh god can't be bothered with that (laughs) you know and just make them exciting and share the passion and sort of tell inform people why they're so important and about the brilliant research going into them and I just think the power of spoken word and as you said storytelling storytelling is something that we've done for millennia as humans it's such a powerful way of sort of sharing information so I absolutely love what you're doing I know you've got a new film out I noticed on your on on your twitter yeah the latest film we've made was actually our first feature film was on basking sharks and so that ties in obviously to my background in marine biology and I've been working on basking sharks since 2013 I did my first volunteer research placement with the Manx basking shark watch and that was satellite tagging taking genetic samples and after my PhD I was then employed as a postdoc on a basking shark project Um, so it's something that I really wanted to explore for quite a long time and yeah, it just came together really nicely. I reached out to quite a lot of contacts. They were really keen, or most of them had time to share their stories. Um, and yeah, it's following the basking sharks northerly migration or part of it through UK and Irish waters. We get to speak to a whole host of different people who are all linked from their various walks of life by the sharks, from former basking shark hunters to the latest conservation and research technology. And it is, it's fascinating to hear things. I I found stories I'd never even heard of, such as basking sharks being hunted at night from tiny wooden boats, and they were illuminated in the 50s by burning a tiny bit of shark liver, which is obviously full of oil, on the bow of this wooden boat. And obviously, they're in, this is in the 50s, so it's, um, yeah, the technology was very different. And you can imagine it'd be so dangerous and so scary at night, all these little boats out on the water targeting maybe 12-metre sharks. 
um, to hear that these kind of stories told by the men who are really there, it's still in living memory. It's fascinating. Um, and then to hear how they now, attitudes have changed. They want to have the sharks protected. They want to see tourists coming and enjoying them as ecotourism. It's, it's really fascinating to hear these things. And again, to see behind the scenes of what scientists are really doing to try and protect and, and better understand these endangered species. No, I, I think that that sounds like such dedication from them to want to hunt the basking sharks like at, at night in yeah. such dangerous conditions. What were they hunting them for? Well, uh, I mean, usually I believe they were hunting during the day. Uh, the nighttime must have been when they were coming in huge numbers needed to make the most of it. Hmm. So they were hunting the sharks to get the, the livers because basking sharks, like, like a lot of sharks, like sunfish, they don't have swim bladders. Hmm. Uh, they have oily livers, which give them buoyancy. Um, but obviously the oil in those livers can be used by us for, for a whole host of different things. And so in the 50s, they said that Dublin and Belfast street lamps were run on shark oil. Um, and then later in, like, I think it was in the 70s that it was being used for women's cosmetics. Uh, it's being used as a high grade oil for airplanes and a whole host of different things. They, they would also use the shark meat for animal feed. Mm. The fins would be shipped off to different parts of Asia for shark fin soup. So they were using large parts of the shark, but they were also catching hundreds a day. And so obviously that's, um, if you can imagine lots of villages doing that and, and lots of parts of all across the world, it, it does have knock-on impacts, unfortunately. So um, yeah, there are issues with shark fishing and obviously the fishery did eventually collapse. Hmm. Well, that sounds, yeah, it's it sounds like such an important documentary. I'm looking forward to watching that. And I will, I'll put a few links um in the in the little in the little blurb yeah, so people so people can um go and watch that um I just want to ask you a little bit more about sort of your science communication work I mean I always I always say that if you could capture the excitement of children then I think we might we'd be all right you know because yeah. my kids are so excited about and you know me too but <laughs> yeah, when I take my kids to the beach you know my my if I give my kids a choice what do you want to do today it'll be oh can we go and collect rocks and I'm like yes absolutely we can go and collect <laughs> rocks but you know the the excitement that they have over the natural world is just so I think it's so inspiring and I think there comes a point where we reach adulthood that a lot of people lose that sense of wonder so I'm just yeah, I'm, I'm, sure. I'm really curious yeah. to know sort of how you how do you how you keep that wonder alive and how do you sort of reignite that in people what I don't know what you're well thinking. I think with a lot of people the passion definitely it's still there it's just gets trodden down by everyday burdens and cares and what's on the news and what's for dinner and, and just regular kind of the everyday things of life whereas kids obviously can go oh I just want to do this this is yeah. great and so I think yeah if you can help people to yeah to re-engage with that that inner passion uh, it, it's normally just under the surface if they can be able to access it and obviously unfortunately that that can be more challenging in in certain climates especially at the moment you know with COVID and everything going on in the world it can be a bit difficult a bit depressing a bit hard sometimes to engage or, or find the time yeah so that's one area where I feel that things like social media or doing films or podcasts is great because it means you don't if you can't access the beach for example that can be quite a privileged thing to do um, but studies have shown that even by engaging with nature through podcasts or through watching it on TV, that helps to lower blood pressure mm. and it helps to calm and soothe and put people in a more positive frame of mind. So the healing properties of nature, that the benefits we can get from it are, are really extensive. You don't have to be able to actually get to these places to be able to benefit from that. 
So I think, yeah, there's, there's a long, large role for science communication and helping bring the outdoors to people who can't get there at the moment, even if they would like to. No, absolutely. And I do. Yeah, I know what you mean with the even nature documentaries helping. I mean, like, look, if you listen, if you just sit and listen to a David Attenborough documentary, you just oh, it's so soothing, instantly calm, <laughs> don't you? And it's like, it's like, yeah, this is this is this is good. Um, yeah. So it's, yeah, it's fascinating to actually think about the power of nature extending to technology, because I know, again, this is something um, that I spoke about in an in an episode uh, with Ben Garrett, actually, about accessibility of nature. Um, and he was talking about how sometimes people go oh oh no when you talk about combining technology and nature I was talking about you know taking these apps that you can get to go and identify plants and I think they're wonderful because it makes it makes it so accessible to you you don't have to carry the the internet in the whole (laughs) internet in a book or something it's there on your phone and it's there accessible for you to use when you need it and I think um and Ben agreed that combining technology and nature is just such an incredible way especially in the 21st century of Mm. getting people involved and we're we're in a time now where the information is just at our fingertips and all which is magic isn't it I mean it is wonderful these documentaries are all at our fingertips and we can we can learn about whatever we want to learn about instantly kind of thing you know you think Mm. of a question I'm the worst three o'clock in the morning I'll be like oh how much does a sunfish weigh I'm so with you on that yeah yeah exactly and you wake up and you have to you have to know the answer to that instantly and and we're so lucky now that we can have the answer to that instantly but I think it's it's somehow bridging that gap between showing people that that information is there and sort of sparking an interest and I don't yeah and I think that's really important is it's that balance also between like having the opportunity to have all this information at your fingertips, but also just taking time just to enjoy it. That's mm-hmm. one thing that I really like is things like, um, like spring, watch, spring watch's mindful moments yeah. where you're not expected to absorb any information. You can just look and go, ah, oh, unwind. Like with the David Attenborough you were talking about. It's like that kind of soothing, oh no, it's, it's probably going to be okay moment that I think we all need just to absorb. And then as you say, the fact that if there's anything sparks your interest or makes you think, oh, actually, I can't remember. Or I'd like to know more the information is just there uh, that's what I definitely do all the time is I'll take a minute to look and think and then obviously that'll trigger a million things you've probably been trying to remember for ages oh I was meant to look up what's the name of that particular species of crab where do I find those anemones again I'm sure it was the beach down the road mm-hmm. definitely yes. no I think I think we have this thing as humans that we have to have a reason for everything but we don't have to have a reason to just go into nature and just enjoy it, do we? I mean, there's that there's that um, terrifying statistic. I think was it one in five children haven't seen the sea in the UK, mm-hmm. which just which just got to me. And I thought, you know, if it's, there must be a way to be able to harness the power and the you know of nature and yeah. get it to, to all these children, because I think that Definitely. that's. That's it's like you're saying about science it, it's all about accessibility and and yeah. that's yeah I, I have to constantly pinch myself realize how privileged I am to be in the position to be able to have a look at science behind the scenes or you know talk to people about what they're doing because it is hard to access and sometimes science can feel like a, a bit of an exclusive club mm-hmm. that it, it's hard to get into and hard to understand but I think as, as scientists and also as science outreach, it, it's our duty to make sure that information is accessible so that anyone who's interested can join in and have the opportunity to have a look and see if they find that interesting too. And yeah. that's got to be the way forwards, I think. Absolutely. I think by sharing 
sharing your passion in, in an in an accessible way is just it's so powerful and as we said the power of spoken word and story which is why I think what you're doing with swimming heads is just amazing and I can't wait to watch some of the films I have just clicked those swimming heads that did you say that was German for, yes <laughs> yeah I'm sorry I did name all of uh all of our production stuff after Sunfish yeah swimming head productions like the Schwimmenkopf <laughs> I like that I like that I think that's that's a really great connection and obviously shows your your sort of passion for the species um I think to finish I always ask my guests I know it's a really hard question but if you could just tell people sort of one thing that they can do in their everyday lives to, to make a difference to the world around them. Because again, I think that people are scared because they think to make a change, we have to make these huge differences in our lives and it has to be these huge overpowering actions, but they, <laughs> but they don't do they? So what, no, no, not at what all. would you, what would you suggest just to someone listening to this who really wants to do something to make a difference? What can they do? I think the main thing, I guess, if you really want to make a difference is, is start small, find something that, that actually is sustainable. You can you can kind of continue with. So I don't know whether that's trying to take a water bottle with you or can you cope without meat one day a week or some, something that you can actually try. And if you can get on top and on board with that, then maybe try something else. I, I went to a talk a long time ago, which was by um, Chris Packham, mm. and he said he'd just turned vegan. But he's realized how privileged he was to be able to take a, a vegan diet. And he's like, but, you know, for anyone out there, he said something similar. That's what I'd like to pass on. He said, start where you can make a difference or a change if you can. And then if that works can you do something else? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what I try and do. So um, yeah, the wise words of Chris Packer, maybe something to, to think about. Absolutely. No, brilliant. Um, I know with, with my kids, especially, I, I don't eat meat, but um, my ki- I've always given them freedom of choice. You know, I educate yeah. them in where it comes from. Um, yeah, but now they're starting to take an interest and they're saying in the shops, oh, can we buy the, can we, can we try the vegan version? And oh, lovely. So it is brilliant. And, and yeah, my little, my littlest one actually surprisingly has converted to things like vegan bacon and he'll have the vegan. Oh, nice. now. The bigger one is taking a bit more persuasion, but he's trying them. And I think think that's mm. the main thing he's aware like he bought he chose to um buy a dairy-free butter the other day and oh. he was like oh this tastes really good yeah this is and so that's it's those making those tiny changes. yeah definitely it I feels think- like a little win when you find something you can substitute that that you don't notice that because you know um my husband suggested that we go meat free and I find it quite hard I'm uh, not perfect but I'm definitely more vegetarian than I was yeah. <laughs> uh, so maybe about 90% now and that's something that yeah it has been difficult but every time you find something where you're like actually this particular type of like yeah meat-free fake chicken or this falafel dish is delicious and I was like oh okay I'll add that to my you know book of things I need to remember to do again and mm-hmm. yeah I, I, but obviously that that's not always applicable to everyone so it's a question about finding what what suits what suits you and where you can take it exactly and it's about making it sustainable for yourself again making these small changes choosing plant-based butter over you know over normal butter or I have hazelnut milk in the house now instead of normal milk I haven't drunk it It is it's gorgeous um I haven't had it (laughs) I haven't had normal milk for I don't know probably about four years now um because I found something that worked for me and went with it oh it sounds lovely yeah 
But thank you. I want to just say a huge thank you for joining me today. I really, I've actually really enjoyed learning about sunfish. Thank I, you um, so much for having me. I listened to the uh, the Radio Four um, oh, yes. program, <laughs> and I thought that's what sort of spot. I was like, ooh, ooh, these are fascinating. Um, and that I <laughs> they had a lot of fun. They are, they are, they're brilliant, aren't they? And obviously, when you Google them, and I urge everyone who's listening to this, if you don't know what a sunfish looks like, just go and type in sunfish for Google. <laughs> yeah, it's are. worth it. They are, they are funny looking things, but they're absolutely fascinating. And I can't wait to sort of learn more about them as more research comes out. Um, as I said, I will put up some links to to your work so people can see more about yeah, what you're doing. Lovely, thanks. Um, and yeah, just thank you for joining me. It's been brilliant. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been really lovely. Thank you. I was so excited to learn more about sunfish. They're so unusual and I jumped at the chance to have this conversation with Tasha about them. If you haven't listened yet, I'll pop the link for you to listen to the BBC Radio 4 programme, Wild Inside, where Tasha was involved with the live dissection performed by Ben Garrod and Jess French recently. It's a fascinating approach to a dissection and really helps you understand these sunfish. As mentioned in the episode, I'll also share some information on Swimming Head Productions where you can have a look at the work Tasha is doing and watch the new Basking Shark documentary we discussed. Today is of course International Women's Day and what better way to celebrate than a conversation with an incredible and inspirational woman who is working hard to secure a future for these fascinating species. But I do want to take a moment to say that International Women's Day is about much more than this. It's an opportunity to speak up about the experiences of women across the world. We need to be talking about pay gaps, accessibility for mothers in employment, raising the voices of women and highlighting the struggles that we go through every single day and that have been somehow accepted as commonplace, but this absolutely should not be the case. We have a voice and collectively we can be so loud. So use your voice, talk about your experience and make a change. I'll end with a quote from one of my favourite books, Little Women, by Louisa May Alcott. Women, they have minds and they have souls as well as just hearts. And they've got ambition and they've got talent as well as just beauty. And I am so sick of people saying that love is all a woman is fit for. I'm Charlie and this has been Mountain Conversations.